The Grand Canyon is known as one of the natural wonders of the world, rightfully so. Arizona, the state in which the Grand Canyon exists, is known as the Grand Canyon State. Over the years living in Arizona, I've had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon a number of times, and each time I'm left in awe of what I see. You can't really grasp what is in front of you, what is in view, in just one quick look, one quick visit. There's so much to see. And in terms of the mountain range of truth in the Bible, when it comes to the gospel, there's one book in the New Testament that is majestic beyond words regarding that wonderful gospel. That's where it's outlined. That's where it's specifically portrayed in such a degree, to such a depth that you're left in awe. And you can't visit the book of Romans just once and grasp all that's there. Not at all. There's so much to see. When it comes to the uh, book of Romans, Romans 8, Romans 9 is really the, the top of the mountain. You can see the whole world from there almost. It's as, as if that's the case. And if there's just two or three verses in Romans 8 that is the absolute apex, the, the, the top of the mountain, it's Romans 8 verses 28 through 30. Over the years, over the decades, even over the centuries since the Apostle Paul penned these words, the people of God have been thoroughly edified by gazing into the truth found in these marvelous verses. Let's go there once again. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, right through to 30. Last time we were here, we mentioned the fact that this is in a context, as always. Every Bible verse is in a context. And the context of Romans 8 starts with the banner headline of no condemnation. And it ends with verse 35 and 39, declaring the fact that there's no separation. There's no condemnation for the people of God, and there's no separation for the people of God from God. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says it this way, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And it goes on to then in verse 39 say, Nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's said because that's the context in which we find verses 28 through 30. Nothing that we're going to find there is going to negate the big picture headlines, the big banner headlines of verse 1 and verses 35 through 39. There's no condemnation for the one who's in Christ, and there's no separation for the one who's in Christ. And we see this clearly in verses 28 through 30. These uh, verses act as such a, a wonderful vista to see salvation in its dazzling beauty, its majestic beauty, all wrought 
by the power of God, the will of God, and accomplished by God himself and God alone. Let's read the verses, uh, Romans 8, verse 28. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theologians refer to this passage as the golden chain of redemption. And in it, God is revealing to us an unbreakable chain that starts in eternity past, goes through time, and then on into eternity future. This chain, five links in the chain, is forged by God himself. Five unbreakable links. These are things God does. God does. God foreknows. God predestinates. God calls. God justifies and God glorifies. There's something of an ambiguity in the text, something that's not actually stated, but is definitely implied. And that's the word all. I want to highlight that by reading this passage and inserting another possible implication by way of contrast. In contrast to what I believe is the Implication of the text, the word all. Let's contrast that with what I don't believe is in view at all, the word some. Let me read uh, verses uh, 29 and 30 in that light. And this is what it doesn't say. For some whom he foreknew, he predestined. Some he predestined, he called. Some he called, he justified. And some he justified were glorified. In inserting the word some, we would have to say it would negate everything that is seeking to be communicated. What kind of comfort, what kind of security would reading the text that way give us? Tell you what we wouldn't be able to say if that was the implication of the text, some rather than all, we wouldn't be able to say or even ask this question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Because the answer then would be, a lot of things could. If only some he foreknew he predestined, some he predestined he called, some he called he justified, some he justified he glorified. Only some make it. They were at one point justified, but only some get glorified. What kind of comfort and security would that give us? No, it would negate the two banner headlines we've already discussed. No condemnation for the one in Christ, no separation for the one in Christ. Many things could separate us if that was the implication of the text. It would make absolutely no sense whatsoever to the context. Certainly wouldn't give us any kind of security in Christ, which is the very thing Paul is seeking to do in this Romans 8 passage. 
And beyond Paul is God the Holy Spirit who wants us to know this. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, every word inspired by God. So, I believe that if you got a hundred Bible scholars into a room and uh, asked the question, what's the implication of the text? I think all would agree that the implication is the word all. And so let's read the passage in that light. When it says, for those whom he foreknew, I believe the implication is all of those he foreknew he predestined. Let's read it this way. All he foreknew, he predestined. All he predestined, he called. All he called, he justified. And all he justified, he glorified. No one falls through the cracks. And beyond Paul, Paul wants us to know this. God wants us to know this. Let's look at Romans 8, verse 29. You remember, we need to know these things. We know that for those who love God, not everybody, but those who love God, all things work together for good, specifically for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything that happens to the child of God works together for the good of the child of God. And the greatest good is that we are conformed to the image of his Son. That will happen in glorification, but it's also happening in sanctification as more and more we are being conformed to the image of Christ. The sanctification process begins at the moment of conversion and the promise of God is that everything that happens to the child of God, all things, work together for the highest good of the Christian. What a blessing that is. That's why it's such a comfort. It doesn't just say that some things work together for good. All things work together for good. It doesn't say that everything is good that happens to the child of God. But all things work together for good. God is in charge of all the events taking place in time. And what a comfort that is to the believer. It's as if God himself is the filter regarding every event that happens to the Christian. Think of that. It comes through the hands. It comes through the providence of God. Every event. So that God can say, Child, this will work for your good. And again, the highest good is that we're conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Verse 29, let's read that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Some would say, well, because foreknowledge comes before predestination in the text, then predestination is simply based on God's foreknowledge. In other words, because God foreknows or foresees, he sees in advance with full and complete knowledge what a person will do, and who it is that will respond in faith to the gospel, he simply predestinates those whom he knows will believe. I have to admit, that's how I understood this passage for many years, and it's the way the many deal with the issue of predestination in our day. 
I would also, at that point, uh, back in time, point to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, where we read these words. Uh, it speaks of those who are, quote, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I simply assumed that this verse would add weight to my argument that election and predestination is based on God knowing ahead of time what we will do. And that seemed to satisfy me for a long time, more length of time than I would wish, because at first glance it's, it certainly seems to be a legitimate interpretation because the word foreknow or foreknew comes before predestination in the text. Yet the fact that foreknowledge comes before predestination should not shock us in any way, should not surprise us in any way, because God would need to foreknow a person he's going to predestinate to something. See, God does not predestinate unknown persons, but specific individuals whom he knows. So it's not really an argument for either side in the debate. In both systems, foreknowing would need to come before predestination. Both systems, meaning one, synergism, more than one party working. God predestinates based on what he sees we will do. That system, as well as what I believe is the biblical system, what is called Reformed theology, that God foreknew people whom he predestinated. Let's talk about that. Because the real question is this. On both sides, foreknowledge would need to come before predestination. So it's not really an argument for the first view that that's the case. But the question is this. What exactly does it mean for God to foreknow somebody? See, once you understand that, you realize... Let me say it this way, there's a number of problems with the way I, I, I first might once understood foreknowledge, not the least of which is that Scripture reveals very clearly that left to himself, man will always choose against Christ. Why? Because of his hostile disposition to God. Unregenerate man does not want God, does not seek God. Romans 3.11 says, there is no God-seeker. No one seeks after God. Man is dead spiritually. Not about to breathe his last on a deathbed. No, he's in the morgue. He's dead spiritually with a tag on the toe. He needs his heart of stone to be removed and a heart of flesh to be put in place before he has any interest in seeking God. Romans 8. We're in Romans 8. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, of course, it's pleasing to God to come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Of course, that's pleasing to God. Man outside of regeneration 
man in the flesh cannot do that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, talking, writing to Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Unregenerate man doesn't want God. He's dead spiritually. He does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. He does not want God. Apart from regeneration, man is a sworn enemy of God. A.W. Pink said this, and, and it's related to what I'm saying here. Let me quote him. Quote, God did not elect any sinner because he foresaw that he would believe for the simple but sufficient reason that no sinner ever believes until God gives him faith, just as no man sees until God gives him sight. End of quote. My former interpretation also falls down because the word for new does not merely mean to know future actions beforehand. It has a much more precise meaning. The word for new, the Greek word is prognosko, found in Romans 8.29, is a verb rather than a noun. It's an action word. And as the text informs us, it's something done by God. God foreknows. What exactly does God do then? Well, again, look at the text. It's important we look at the text. So oftentimes we don't, we assume. Here's what the text says. Those whom he foreknew. Let me read that again. Those whom he foreknew. To gain a correct biblical definition of this word for new, rather than assume its meaning, which is what I did, we need to do some homework and some study. In this case, it means we need to go back to passages of Scripture that has God as the subject of this verbal form right here in this passage. You see, passages that have humans as the subject would differ substantially in their meaning from the ones where God is the subject. I'm sure we all agree. We as creatures know things on a very different basis to the way God does. He knows things through and through. We are finite. He is infinite. He's infinite in his knowledge and he's no, always known all things. God has never learnt anything. He does not have to look down the corridors of time to learn something. He's known all things always. Now, when we do that, when we go through the study process, we find the verb prognosco is used three times in the New Testament with God as the subject. Here in Romans 8, 29, then also in Romans 11, verse 2, and lastly in 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. When we do that, when we do this little bit of homework, we find it to be significant when we ask this question, what or who is foreknown by God? In Romans 8, 29, 
the direct object of the verb is a pronoun that refers back to the called of the previous verse. That's verse 28. Next, in Romans 11:2, the object the verb is referring to is his people. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, the object, the object is Jesus Christ himself. Each reference in the New Testament then portrays God as foreknowing persons rather than actions. I pause because we need to really grab hold of that. It portrays God as foreknowing persons rather than actions. 1 Peter 1 verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. The he there is Christ. When God foreknew Christ, that's what's in view. When God foreknew Christ, did that mean that God simply knew that Jesus would make correct decisions or have faith in his Father? Hardly. It speaks of the Father's personal intimacy and affection for his beloved Son. To say that God foreknows acts, faith, behavior, our choices, is to assume something about the term that's not witnessed in the biblical text. God foreknows persons, not actions. Of course, God does know the future actions of people. But my point is this, that's not how the word foreknow is, due, is used biblically ever. How does this relate to what we see in the Old Testament? Well, there we encounter a similar word, Use to foreknew in the New Testament is found in the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A in English. It refers in a number of instances to God's knowing of individuals. For instance, Jeremiah 1.5. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The same concept of God knowing is found in God's knowing of Moses. Exodus 33:17. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Again, we see the personal nature of God's knowing of an individual. It refers to personal intimacy and affection. The affection God had for Moses in that he had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God had chosen Moses to be a recipient of his tender mercy. One more passage regarding yada used uh, in the Bible and speaking of personal intimacy and affection, uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 2. The reference here is Israel. Speaking of Israel, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'll punish you for all your iniquities. Uh, though the ESV translates the word yada here as known, 
The New American Standard Bible actually translates it as chosen. You only have a chosen. And there's a very strong basis by way of context for this word to be translated that way. Literally, it says, you, speaking of Israel, you only have I known. It should be obvious to us that God didn't merely know about Israel and possessed no such knowledge of other nations. Uh, I only know about you, Israel. Uh, no. That's obvious. God didn't merely know about Israel and he didn't know about the other nations, nor that God merely knew the future actions of Israel, didn't know the future actions of the other nations. Now, this knowing of Israel is deeply personal, deeply intimate. It speaks of God's grace in choosing them to be his people for his sovereign purposes alone. This word Yadah is also found in Genesis chapter 4, way back there in chapter 4, verse 1, when it says, Adam knew his wife Eve. The result of that knowing was a child, revealing, again, a deep personal relationship. All of this is important because it presents a consistent pattern. Understanding how the verb is used, you see what we're doing? We're studying rather than assuming. Understanding how the verb is used in the New Testament, along with these insights from the Old Testament, provides a very strong basis for understanding what foreknew actually means. James White in his book, The Potter's Freedom, states it this way. When Paul says, those whom he foreknew, Paul is speaking about an action on God's part that is just as solitary, just as God-centered, and just as personal as every other action in the string. God foreknows, chooses to enter into relationship with, God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies. From first to last, it is God who is active, God who accomplishes all these things." End of quote. Foreknew, therefore, does not merely suggest a passive gathering of infallible knowledge of the future actions of free creatures, but rather reveals that from start to finish, salvation is a divine accomplishment. Let me say those words again. Salvation is a divine accomplishment. It is God alone who saves to the praise of his glory alone. To quote Dr. James Montgomery Boyce in his comments on Romans 8.29, those whom God foreknew, the verse does not say that God foreknew what certain of his creatures would do. It is not talking about human actions at all. On the contrary, it is speaking entirely of God and of what God does. Each of these five terms is like that. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. Besides, the object of the divine foreknowledge is not the actions of certain people, but the people themselves. In this sense, it can only mean that God has fixed a special attention upon them or love them savingly.
End of quote. I trust you grasp that. What's in view is not the actions of certain people, but the people themselves, those whom God foreknew. Let's establish this. Romans 11, 5 and 6 declares this. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We've, we've really got to grasp what grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's never on the basis of the actions of people. Grace is what God does for sinners. Allow me to quote Mark Webb here. The most casual Bible student admits that Scripture indeed employs the language of election when speaking of God's eternal purposes. Yet most seek to dodge the, implication, the implications of that language by fleeing to the refuge of conditional election, i.e. that God's choice or election of certain men to salvation is conditioned by his foreseeing faith in those men. He goes on, if conditional election is true, if God's choice of me is determined by my choice of him, the practical effect of this teaching is no different than if it were no election if there were no election at all. The proof of this assertion is seen in the fact that the groups who hold this view seldom, if ever, mention the subject. And why should they? To what purpose? Since it's taught that God has done all he can do to save, it's now up to man, the will of man, becomes the determining and dominant factor in salvation. Whenever you make God's choice of men to salvation hinge upon what he foresees in man, be it his work, his faith, or his choice, you have effectively undermined the whole concept of salvation by grace alone. Either salvation depends upon God's free choice and good pleasure, which is the principle of grace, or... It depends upon something man himself produces, which is the principle of works. It really matters not whether this thing which God foresees is something tangible, seen outwardly in the man's life, or something intangible, seen inwardly only by God. It matters not whether it's a huge thing or whether it's a tiny thing. So long as man's part is the critical, determinative part, you have a system based upon works, not grace. He goes on. Let me illustrate. Suppose you came to me and said, Mark, I have a $15,000 car here. If you'll pay me $15,000... I'll give you the car. We'd all agree, that's not grace, that's works. But suppose you said, Mark, I have a $15,000 car here, and I'll simply give you the car. We'd all agree, that's grace, not works. But now, let's try to mix the two concepts. Suppose you said, Mark, 
here's a $15,000 car. I'll be $14,999 gracious to you if you'll simply pay me $1. We have succeeded in mixing grace and works. Have we? Have we succeeded in mixing grace and works? No. For what's the practical difference between that last offer and you simply saying, Mark's, uh, Mark, here, here's a $15,000 car. I'll sell it for $1. Do you see? They're still coming to me on the basis of selling, not giving. You've not changed your principle. You've simply lowered your price. This is precisely Paul's point in Romans 11, 5 through 6. An unconditional election is the only concept of election consistent with salvation by free grace. God intentionally designed salvation so that man, no man, could boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. Election does precisely that. What difference does it make? Hmm. Makes all the difference in the world. That's the end of the quote. Quite a quote, right? Before we move on, let's look at this from another logical perspective of what God knew from eternity. John Hendricks has stated this, if God knew someone would choose hell even before he created them, then this was a fixed certainty even before their creation. So why did God go ahead and create them? It was obviously in their view, still within his providence, that these people be lost. Or, if God already foreknew who would be saved, then how can they continue to argue that he's trying to save every man? Certainly, God already knows who the persons will be. So, why should he send the Holy Spirit to those he knows will reject him? End of quote. You see, ultimately, when that former view I had is subjected to scrutiny, it logically undermines the very position it's seeking to assert. Let me quote C.H. Spurgeon. But, say others, God elected them on the foresight of their faith. Now, God gives faith, therefore he could not have elected them on account of faith, which he foresaw. There shall be 20 beggars in the street, and I determined to, to give one of them a shilling. But will anyone say that I determined to give that one a shilling, that I elected him to have the shilling, because I foresaw that he would have it? That would be talking nonsense. In like manner, to say that God elected men because he foresaw they would have faith, which is salvation in the germ, would be too absurd for us to listen to for a moment. 
Strong stuff, isn't it? We're talking about a God who's strong, who has laid bare his holy arm in salvation. Now again, that's picture language. God the Father does not have a physical body, but he's shown us his strength in the salvation he's given to us. When we understand this, the lights begin to, to come on and we understand the love of God found in Jesus Christ to the undeserving, wretched sinners, treasonous rebels. What a joy to realize he saved us by his act alone. If you're a child of God, he foreknew you. Revel in that. He set his love on you in eternity past. He predestinated you, called you, justified you, and glorified you. Now, the glorified portion is still yet future. But so certain of it, God is, he can speak of it as if it's already done. It's as good as done. You're justified, you will be glorified. No one falls through the cracks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this short study on foreknowledge. May it thrill our hearts to know the God for no reason in us, none at all, foreknew us. Lord, we are thankful. We are beyond thankful. Thank you for your eternal purposes. You wrote the names of those you elected in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We are so thankful. Thank you in Jesus' name.